Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And just for posterity's sake, we ran, we doubled our running time. We did. Today. I am very tired. Yes. And there was My a moment. My legs are wobbly. There was a moment where our whole friendship hung in the balance because we have this ongoing. I have this ongoing, it's not a joke, it is true, that like at some points, I mean, I struggle sometimes, you struggle sometimes, like it's a pretty even balance. Although I will say you are... I'm older. No, I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say when I am struggling, you are accommodate nicer. me. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it depends on your perspective, like what's nicer, right? Because when you're strong, struggling... R- Really? I'm so like, hey, that, this is a encouraging debate. your person to like keep going seriously. because they can do it, like seriously? believing in them. Anyway, seriously, I'm just saying is that when you're struggling, I'm usually like, we can stop if you want to. And then pregnant pause. But I always also say to you, listen, I need you to stop. Like you cannot collapse on our runs because... I would obviously do everything I could to save your life, but if I ever had to do mouth to mouth, we couldn't be friends anymore. And there was a moment Friendship today over. when we finished this one part of the run and we did stop to walk and you were just I felt like a little light. Really and you were really struggling for breath and I was like, I can't talk to you. I can't make a joke because this feels very tenuous. <laughs> anyway. But you but we made it. So we made it. That was good news. And we are better for it. So, um, as you're about to take a sip of coffee, what is astonishing you this week? Listen, I need to testify to the goodness and faithfulness and kindness of God to the saints at Derrida Church. Uh, We have uh, a woman who joined our church family um, over the summer um, after I um, officiated a funeral for her husband. Um, I did not know her before then, and um, after that funeral, she started worshiping with us and then joined, and then this past August, her brother died, and then just last week, her other brother was sent to the hospital with some major heart issues, and so she called me a couple of days ago saying, the situation is not looking good. The doctor said, if we don't do anything, he has about a year left. But he can have this surgery that will give him this heart pump. Part of the apparatus will always be outside of his body, but it will extend his life. He does not want to have the surgery. I want him to fight and have the surgery, and we are stuck. He's my last brother. He doesn't have any other family. We're stuck. Would you come and just talk and pray and sit with us absolutely I will come and so um, we said yesterday um, would be the day yesterday was Monday and um, I got up and my tire was flat so I had to change a tire it's running behind schedule and so I called her I said Diane I'm really sorry I, I need to get this this tire fixed, um, but I I am coming. And she said to me, well, the doctor just came in and they're going to send him home. He is doing so well. Like all of his numbers are Mm. up. He's, 
and we had prayed the day she um, she called me to tell me the situation. I said, well, before you go, let's just pray over the phone. And um, so we're having this conversation yesterday, and she said his, his numbers were up. They're going to send him home. Um, it doesn't mean that he is out of the woods forever and ever, amen, but the doctors are surprised by the turnaround, and they're not going to need to do the surgery, and there you go. And I said, wait, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she said, I know, right? That's, that's what I've been mm -hmm. saying for the past 20 minutes. Wait, what? What's going on here? And so we, we just sat with that and uh, gave God thanks for that and, and rejoiced in that. And, um, you know, and she thanked me for being her pastor, which, you know, is always yeah. lovely and wonderful and um, affirming. And um, after we ended that conversation, I, you know, we do this work. We do this pastoring work and we live this Christian life like all other Christians. And we believe what Christians have believed for centuries. And yet, when God surprises us mm -hmm. and does the thing that we confess that God can do and does throughout the Bible, sometimes we're, we're surprised in a way that highlights, and I, I think I have to confess, a, a, a sort of lack of faith. Uh -huh. um, I, I was genuinely, yeah. my prayer was, God, heal, restore, and at the same time, I'm preparing for hard conversation, continued sickness, um, and that's, that's where my ministry energy was going. Mm -hmm. And with this turnaround, there was some conviction that said, oh, did, <laughs> you didn't exactly believe that part about healing that you prayed. You believed it, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. You are surprised by it. Yeah, I think um, it's that somebody has this term. I think that it's... Um, the Christian hedonism guy, the guy, John Piper, J John Piper. I think he's the one who talks about most Christians are practical atheists or pragmatic atheists. I think that's his term. Mm. And by that, he doesn't mean that we don't believe what we believe. He doesn't mean that we don't like n know Jesus and want to follow Jesus and want to trust Jesus with our lives but what he is saying and I I mean and I find this to be I mean descriptive of of me as well is that there there's there is just this sort of sense of like okay I know that Jesus has handled all the cosmic stuff <laughs> um so like you know salvation you know create you know whatever restoration of, of creation sin. just like yeah. all the big stuff like the cross did amazing huge cosmic eternal destiny kinds of things but for the everyday here and now i am on my own with a set of instructions and values and god is just really sort of expecting me to make 
wise and faithful, responsible decisions. And, you know, if something, you know, extraordinary happens, I, I can cry out to God for deliverance from, you know, whatever disease or war or, you know, natural disaster. But in the day to day, I'm I'm kind of on my own. Like God has given me the gift of life, and um, and, and so we, you know, we that He calls that. I think it's Piper. Maybe it's not. I might have given him credit for someone else's work, but he calls that practical atheism. Like that on a practical level, we don't make decisions any differently than someone who doesn't believe in God would make. Now we might have different values than a person who doesn't believe in God would have. May, may we might, or we might not. But when it comes to sort of making a, um, practical decisions and sort of reckoning, well, what's my strength? What's a likely outcome? What will I prepare for? We, we, we live as though what we have and what we can do with it form the limits that we can expect in life. And so those moments of actually experiencing like healing, deliverance, manifesting, you know, a provision, they're both wonderful and awful because they reveal to us, oh, I, I don't, I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm maybe I'm walking for the Lord. I'm working for the Lord, but there's just a lot of stuff where I'm saying, I'll do this on my own and I'll do what I feel like I can and I won't do what I feel like I can't and I'm not responsible beyond that because I'm just a person and this is what a person can reasonably do or expect and so I I, yeah I, I I mean I find this I mean I feel deep clarity and I have since the beginning of being a pastor that when someone invites you to their hospital bed to into that you pray for healing and you pray for healing like boldly and expectantly and wholeheartedly because nobody, because that's what we ask for. We ask for the Lord to heal us. And we, and we ask knowing that we don't know what kind of, you know, how that will be expressed, but we, you know, we don't hedge our bets. We boldly pray for healing. But I do think sometimes when it comes to, um, you know, choices that we might make in terms of, you know, well, I, I think maybe X is the right decision, but I don't practically see a way that it would work out. So I'm going to choose Y because that seems more reasonable. I mean, it's the same sort of thing of like, I believe in the abstract that God is, you know, an incarnate God and is here and is alive and at work and the resurrection power is, uh, but when I don't factor that resurrection power in, I think sometimes because we, the more than anything else, we just fear disappointment. So we have not because we ask not because we don't, we, we don't want to hear a no. Um, or we don't want to experience the radical disorienting of knowing that like, actually we could have a much more dynamic participatory relationship with the Lord. If we were willing to be more vulnerable about saying, God, I think that this is faithful. There's no way I can pull it off, but I'm going to step into the space vulnerably knowing that you, you know, I don't know how your glory might be manifested and it might be manifested with me looking like a fool, but I'm not going to hold back. Um, Yeah. I mean, I just pragmatism 
sometimes rules the day instead of faith that God actually still is alive and at work. Yeah, add to that story the experience we had as a church, Derida Church, this past Saturday in our annual prayer summit where we gather to seek the Lord for um, for God's own agenda for us in the coming year. So we met this past Saturday, and it's primarily about listening. Yeah. It's primarily about what is God saying to us as the church? And we could, you know, let's just send the pastor off on a retreat up the mountain like Moses going up on Sinai, and then the pastor comes down and said, I've heard from the Lord, church, this is what we're going to do. Or we can gather as a community of believers and all listen. And and that's that's our model um, was Dariah Church. And so we, we gathered in the fellowship hall about 17, 18 people around uh, uh, tables, about four people at each table and um, we pray in those small groups and so we pray about different areas of the church and uh, everyone has a stack of index cards and so whenever even if someone else at the table is praying whenever you think you hear something from the Lord you write it down on the index card you put it on in the basket on the center of the table and um, and so you've got you know about five different groups mm-hmm. praying and it is astonishing to then go through these cards and say this table on one at one end of the room heard the same thing that a table at the other end of the room heard it's just it's fascinating and it is a it's a confirmation that the lord is in our midst and leading us because it is so easy to get to a place where you're thinking oh we're doing this on our own. Right. Well, and, you know, especially at the Grove, we, one of our guiding principles is we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's a very comfortable thing to say just as a theological statement. Basically, I am testifying to you what I believe about the Holy Spirit or about resurrection or incarnation, but but to really go, okay, well, but practically, how do we embody that? Um, that's, you know, that's really the rub. Like these things are easy to say, but the living them out is just messy and vulnerable and you know, you're out of control. And I think, you know, the illusion that is most hard to allow the Lord to remove from us is the illusion that we're in control and we're just not, we're just not. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that's like idolatry 101. And so, yeah. Um, and by the way, practical atheism may be Tim Keller and not. You're um, right. It is Tim Keller. That's it. Yeah. I just get yeah. those New York. Well, Piper was Minneapolis, Keller, New York. Oh, is Piper still alive? Piper is Keller. Is not. T- yeah. Tim Keller has died. Yes. Yeah. I, it is Tim Keller. Yeah. Yes. I thought. Piper. Well, anyway, no one cares about this but <laughs> us. But yes. So what's astonishing um, you? You know, um, Sunday, I, I like. Everyone I know, um, <laughs> I'm going to just detour around because that's what makes these delightful conversations, right? <laughs> so I follow on Instagram, which I know you're too, too, Don't too. Don't do it. To be, you know, I'm just, I, I applaud you. Um, but Yolanda is not on any kind of social media except for YouTube, but I am, and I'm not proud. I just, that's the truth. And one of the people I follow on Instagram randomly is Michael Che, who is 
A comedian, yeah. A comedian, and he currently is on Saturday Night Live and does um, the news segment with this other comedian, Colin Jost. And I love Saturday Night Live for no good reason. Like, it's very rarely good, but I always love to watch it. And partly, I think, is my like it's a childhood thing I always wanted to watch it when I was a kid and wasn't allowed and then also because I'm a pastor and so it's like the lure of procrastination or something like I don't know whatever the state of preparation for Sunday is it is in no way responsible to watch Saturday Night Live but I so I just always want to and I would like to point out I rarely watch it on Saturday night, but I do. Anyway, I really like it a lot. So I follow Michael J on Instagram, and he had this hilarious um, thing. I think about this all the time. So he is a black man, and he's one of the few black cast members. And sort of there's this ongoing conversation about, like, is Saturday Night Live a, a cultural institution? And I think it is. And then also, how good is it? And, like, does it deserve to be that? And is it relevant anymore? And, and um you know, lots of people think no, and I mean, fair enough, but, um, and particularly because even though there have always been, um, black men on Saturday Night Live, there have very rarely been black women and there just hasn't always been a very diverse show. And so there's, I think, natural conversation about like how inclusive and how broadly reflective of the American experience is it. Um, and so comedians or like, Michael Che, like up and coming black comedians and comedians of color can get like sort of grief about like, well, why are you legitimizing this um, sort of entrenched um, white institution as opposed to like creating something new? And I mean, that's just a conversation that people have that I listen to. But, and, but I just tell from reading interviews with Michael Che that he like, has to sort of constantly answer that question like why are you part of this franchise why are you giving it legitimacy are you really making a difference like what's the whole thing and and then he had an Instagram post at one point that in his Instagram posts are never images which I also think is hilarious because I'm a word person too and he he was just like hey Gen Z you know hating Saturday Night Live is not a personality (laughs) which I thought was really funny because a lot of people are just like as someone who likes it, people are like, oh, you're so whatever, whatever, and I'm so evolved, whatever. I'm like, no, you just don't like the show. It's not, it is like, it's not a whole personality. It's not a whole vibe. It's not a whole life. Like, it's just not that deep, right? I like it. You don't move on. But um, anyway, I was thinking about that because the thing that is not unique at all is that I, like everyone else in the world, hate daylight savings time. And I dislike it exceedingly. You dislike it? Sure. I hate the time change. I don't care where it is. Like, I don't care if, I don't know if this is the real time or later. How can we be friends? What? It is great. I love it. The time change? Yes. Like, okay, we have a problem. (laughs) We really are discovering something in real time. Well, I hate it um, because I have existential angst about literally, like, and now that I, now that I have a smartphone, it's even more anxiety produced I hate that it happens on Saturday night so I think as a pastor and as a like it really affects us more than most people because it happens right before we are going to get up and do this thing and also now that we've had smartphones I find it even more anxiety producing and confusing because I never feel really certain 
as to like whether my phone has switched or not and is like the time on my phone now like the old time or the new time I'm usually sleep deprived and stress like it's just a whole thing for me so I don't hate fall as much as I hate spring but I I just hate it and also I will say and this might be a gendered thing because in my house as the mother I primarily am the person who has always dealt with children like babies and sleep schedules and toddlers and so like the time change is horrific for if you are a nursing mother getting up three times like it's just awful so I hate it and um I know that's not a personality it might be a deal breaker in our friendship but I hate it but I will say what astonished me is on Sunday like normally at the Grove people kind of trickle in and that's fine I'm just glad people come but on Sunday like we were getting ready to start and and the sanctuary was full of people and I swear there was just like this this lightness and joy in the space and I really was like I don't, I don't get it like it it felt like it felt like a holiday right and I just couldn't figure out like and I was like oh this is because everyone has an extra hour and they are not stressed and they got more sleep and so I don't know. I mean, I hate the time change. It's terrible. There are literal studies about how like fatalities increase the weeks after it happens. Like it is objectively bad, but I wish there were a way without changing the time that everyone could get an extra hour of sleep. Or I think maybe everyone else is staying up at night and watching Saturday Night Live, which I think you need to like TiVo it or record it because like, it's just amazing how much a difference it makes when everyone just has time and space and okay, sleep. First of all, TiVo, hello, 1991. Sorry, whatever, DVR it, whatever it is. I never had TiVo when TiVo was a thing because it was too expensive. I'm sorry, this is all superfluous and it doesn't matter. It was just a joyful day at Worship at the Grove and it was really nice to be gathered and everyone was there. And I, it was astonishing for me to realize that this thing I hate was actually what was behind this like beautiful spirit in the room. God, I, I'm, I'm that was still, a long way along, I'm around the barn. I'm still stuck on, you dislike daylight savings time. Right. It is the best. Okay. And by the way, I do watch Saturday Night Live on Saturday nights <laughs> because I am up still working on I know, sermon. that's true. Um, I, there, that's, that's a point of commonality. I We're going to have to take this offline because I really think there are a lot of really unique things about you. But I don't, like, I think you need to do a poll because I really think you're the only one. You are literally, yeah, literally, I, I cannot say literally enough. You are literally the only person I've ever met who likes daylight savings time. How could you not love going to bed knowing that you're going to get an extra hour? Because they're going to take could... it back. We're not going to have a podcast about daylight savings time. This is the dumbest thing ever. We can have a conversation about this, but we're not having. We're not talking right. about it anymore we'll, on the we'll podcast. Okay. All right. um, so what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? What am I... You know, um, well, let me set the context for it first. Um, you know, as a person who has been shaped by the black church, that is that, that um, the institution that came up, um, arose in the midst of um, slavery um, in North America, um, I now that I have been away from the black church for a number of years uh, because I've 
been pastoring, you know, for the past eight years, a historically white church. You know, when you when, when you leave a community, you begin to see things that you did not see before. You begin to value things that you stop valuing. Yeah, that you took for granted. Yes, and one of those things for me was music, especially a certain type of music. Um, I, um, like 25 years ago, I bought a CD. Remember those things? I bought a CD of the Fisk Jubilee Singers from Fisk University, Mm -hmm. one of our great HBCUs in Nashville. As a matter of fact, that uh, university was started, I believe, as as a school for um, children who were biracial. Um, and I, I pulled out the CD of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, and one of the songs has just stayed with me, and that is, it's a song, it's a, it's a spiritual called I Couldn't Hear Nobody Pray. And the words are, I couldn't hear nobody pray, I couldn't hear nobody pray way down yonder by myself, and I couldn't hear nobody pray. And I did not understand when I was a young man of 24, 25, 26, that that was a lament. And, you know, at at that time in my life, I was thinking, you know, can we just move past these slave songs and get some more, you know, more joyful praise songs? But now, you know, that that song is about being in a place of pain and grief and suffering that's so deep that you you have no sense that anyone is praying for you and your suffering is so deep that you don't even have, you can't even pray yourself, right? I couldn't hear nobody pray. Um, So that's the context in which I want to talk about what I'm thinking about. So in that context, um, our friend Elizabeth Bridges sent us a link to a podcast. Uh, It's a conversation between Kate Bowler um, and N.T. Wright, whom I love. He's your boyfriend. He's he's my favorite New Testament scholar. You always talk about having two friends. It's like me and Albert Moses, but the truth is N.T. Wright is your... Well, the two friends I can pick up the phone and call anytime... N.T. Wright is my, you know. Some, I wonder if N.T. Wright does those things that like celebrities like do cameos. <laughs> like you pay him two hundred dollars and they'll be like, "Hey, Kitty, happy eighth birthday!" I would right? Totally I think pay that money. Someone I would totally no, someone do needs that. to do that for you. Totally like, do that. Yeah, because yes. I feel like if N.T. Wright knew you, he would, he would like me. He would. We would be friends. <laughs> like, that is true. Yes, that we is would be true. Friends. Um. So, um, she's in this podcast, and it's it's about. Uh, the mystery of suffering and um, how we have a tendency just to be uh, impatient with um, a lack of certainty, impatient with with mystery. We love certainty. And the the place in the podcast, it really got my attention. Because certainty leads to control. Certainty leads to control, yes. Or the illusion of and it. And especially in times of suffering, in yep. times of tragedy, we, we just have this knee-jerk reaction to want to know why and who's at fault. And um, <laughs> Because if we can figure that out, then we, we can, we can um, have some sense of control over what feels like uh, chaos and yeah and i think it's a way of like d- 
distancing or dismissing the the tragedy of it or the pain of it. It's yes. like if you have a reason, then that reason becomes a, a box and you can pack away the human experiences of the people who are going through just in that. Like, well, you know, this happened because you did that or this happened because they did that. And so yes. therefore, now I understand it so I don't have to deal with it and anymore. And it totally skips lament. Can mm-hmm. we simply moan and groan and acknowledge that this is not how it should be. Well, this and, is not what God intended. And it is so anti-Christ, right? I mean, if the whole revelation of incarnation is God leaving sort of the 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 distance, the safety, the glory, the re- the removed movedness of the heavenly realm and coming down to co-suffer, co-labor, co- you know, have and, and com- get to the place where you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, or, um, you know, to have that moment of rage and tears at, at Lazarus's tomb, yes. right? Not to just be like, sorry, Mary, sorry, Martha, it's a bad day for you, but don't worry about it because I'm going to take care of it later. But to say like, no, I'm in my gut. Yeah. I am, um, you know. Or, or to stand around uh, his grave and say, well, if Lazarus had did this, this, and this, he would have lived longer. He would have been healthier, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we look to blame. Um, but the thing that got my attention in this podcast uh, that uh, I, I stopped and I listened to several times, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, he said, I think he was giving a talk to a group of pastors. Oh, yeah. And they asked him what he was working on. And he said, oh, something about Romans 8.28. And he said, all the pastors in the room were able to say uh, that particular scripture in unison, and the um, the, miss. the the King James version says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And um, Anti Wright says we we take that as a, a Christian way of saying um, everything happens for a reason. And everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And everything happens for a reason. And he says, well, and if you look at the Greek, that's not really, that's not really what it says. Right. Well, and and even in the English, that is a, in the mistranslated English to say, I take that to everything happens for a reason. That is explicitly not what it says. Totally not what it says. But anyway, sorry. No worries. Um, N.T. Wright says the Greek is literally in all things. Wait, am I reading the right one? Okay, yeah. here it is. No, that's that's wrong. Here, here it is. God works in all things with those who love the Lord, who are called according to His purpose. So that uh, He says it's it's about it's about our vocation as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So when the tragedy, when the suffering happens. We don't have to explain it. What we're invited to do is to know that God is working in it um, so that you don't have to say, well, God brought that upon you for a reason. Because one of the things that I wrestle with um, as a Christian, as um, an African-American, as a lover of Jesus is, why has God allowed my people to suffer so? And for some, some conclude, well, 
God had a reason, and the reason is so that you could be in America and enjoy living in this country, right? That that is the that that's where the state of Florida is going with their curriculum, right? Um, some conclude, well, it's because it's the curse of Ham. It's it's your punishment, right? And if you if you take the Greek seriously here, it's like no, God did not make the suffering happen, but God has been in it. God has been with us, and there is a, a vocation in suffering. God works. God, wait, where is the text? Oh, I just missed it. Um, I forgot his translation. In all, in all things, God works with those. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I mean. And so, so there's something for us to do as well in the suffering. Which is, I mean, which is the same thing. I mean, because Paul is one person with one brain and one experience of life with Jesus. It's the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans 5 when he's saying we, you know, we even can boast in our suffering because, you know, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. And it's the sense of like we even even in our suffering, if we turn to God in our suffering, God meets us in our suffering and produces out of that suffering, ultimately, you know, the hope of the glory of God, which will not disappoint. And I think that's, you know. But the reason for the suffering was not to get to the hope. Like God did not no. say, well, here's this suffering so that I can get you to this right. hope. And it's not like you you purchase hope through the payment of your suffering. It's not transactional in that way. It, but it is, I think, an un, a sober understanding of, look, if what is happening right now is the powers and principalities that undergird the world which is passing away are breaking down. And then those of us who are feebly and weakly and imperfectly trying to resist them often end up at the center of a clash that leads to suffering in a way that folks who are accommodating won't and because I think you know ultimately this sense of like you know when and I think Kate Bowler talks about this a lot in that podcast and just in general in her work is she is someone who had a had a terminal cancer diagnosis or a, a stage four cancer diagnosis at a at a very young age when she was the mother of a very young child and you know just experienced so many Christians and I think she says like coming at with scripture coming to her with scripture like a blade and just wanting to explain it well like this is why this happens because their their skin in the game wasn't I care about you and you're going through this and so I want to walk through this with you it was I need my understanding of God not to be disturbed or changed in any way by your experience. So I need an explanation that will leave my theology unchanged because you know this is happening to you and not me. <laughs> and I don't even want to experience theological discomfort by watching, you know, like we need these theological rationales so that A, I don't have to emotionally invest and B, so that I can continue to live with the very comforting illusion that what happened to you can never happen to me. And yes. And I'm starting to change some of my language 
about faith. Because years ago, I would have been very comfortable with the idea of certainty, that faith leads to Mm -hmm. certainty. And now I say faith leads to confidence, not certainty. Mm -hmm. So I'm confident that I have a lot of things right. But I make room for two things. Number one, I could be wrong about some things. Mm -hmm. I probably am more than I want to realize. But also I make room for mystery for not knowing not being able to explain everything right and i think i mean it's Anne lamont who says i think really succinctly and hopefully doubt isn't the opposite of faith certainty is and i think you know the way we talk about certainty is the way that the hebrew bible talks about idolatry right that a certainty is just you know a, a tiny little god <laughs> who you worship instead of the unfathomable mystery of who God is, having faith that that mystery is for you and not against you, and that ultimately that mystery is is good um, and not destructive. But that requires, you know, but but that requires faith. It's a it's a foolish risk um, that never never feels safe. Um, but yeah, no, I really um, I I appreciated that conversation a lot and. Um, I am not as in love with N.T. Wright as you are. But, I mean, several things. Strike I, two I know, today. I, I like, I First really appreciate Daylight him. Savings Time, I know, but now N.T. Wright. I will say I appreciate okay. him a lot more just because I, I approach him differently because I hear you talk about how. how and so I, I appreciate him. I'm just saying we don't have to be exactly the same. But what I did appreciate in that conversation, they were saying, like, there are ways when I think Christians in general – pastors particularly and certainly those who are in the sacred academy are sort of trained out of having primary experiences with God that lead them to interpret scripture and it's as if to say well since I'm not a Greek scholar all I can do is look at what all the Greek scholars say about Colossians and then sort of pay my money with the one I agree with the most. And I, I just appreciated both of them. And they're both academics sort of acknowledging like, hey, this is sort of the limit of the academic framework that exists across all disciplines has sort of superimposed on, um, on religion or biblical studies. And, and it's, I mean, it's a little nonsensical on the face of it because the whole premise is, I mean, I think for people who practice the faith, and not everyone does, some people study scripture like an anthropological document, but for people who practice faith, like the foundational premise is we we believe that these words matter, these traditions matter because of the transcendent God behind them. And so I, I appreciate in that conversation, you know, he begins by sharing his own um, formative faith experiences in his youth and you know, really acknowledging that he can look back on them now and sort of question, you know, how, you know, was this an appropriate experience for a seven-year-old boy to have? Or is, is this more a factor of where I was in my adolescence? But also just say, like, these are the places that God met me and these are what shaped me. Um, and I really appreciate that because I don't, I don't hear a lot of academics talking in that way. Um, in a, in a, not a, I, I think sometimes I hear people 
speaking very didactically about like, I am the expert and here are the only reasonable ways to think and live, (laughs) but not to say, these are my, this is my experiential reality and it shapes how I read scripture, which I appreciate because that's, I, I, I'm, I have no interest in being in the academy, although I appreciate what they do because I want to be in community with people who are saying, I want my life to be cruciform. And, um, and I also just, I really laughed when he was talking about looking at these commentaries and you like Romans, which is 15, 16 chapters and the, and this ha- and I think about this all that I see this all the time that you'll be looking at some commentary and the chapter one, especially the Pauline books, chapter one will be like 35 pages long. And then chapter 16 will be like a page and a half. And you're like, I'm sorry, this is not balance. Um, and he was just acknowledging that in the, and I felt seen because he writes commentaries and I'm just glad that he recognizes that the back half of all of these commentaries are deeply underserved because it's like people are like, well, this had to be 200 pages and I took 150 pages to get through the first seven chapters. So now I only have to write 50 more and I'm going to, anyway. So. Well, what are you thinking about? I'm sorry. That was pretty inside baseball that no one cares. Um, I, I'll just say briefly, I just want to note, and I know that not that my spouse listens to this podcast, but when he ever he hears that we talk about sports on this podcast, he just laughs because I don't watch sports and I'm largely ignorant of them, except that as an American, they're just part of the zeitgeist. And so I'm not as ignorant as I would like to be. Let me put it like that. That's good. And um, so I grew up in Kentucky, which is like basketball territory and derby. Um, well Kentucky Derby that's a sport right it it is a sport but I'm just saying like the Derby is is important for a very particular subset of the population but everyone it seems cares about basketball and so growing up in and I was was born in 75 so growing up in the 80s like UK UofL basketball was a really big deal but there's also IU basketball and they're sort of the big nemesis and IU was coached by Bobby Knight. And again, I would like to not know who Bobby Knight is, but I do because he was kind of in the height of his fame. Chair throwing. Right. And and so this past week, Bobby Knight died. And I guess I should say for anyone who is blessedly ignorant about Bobby Knight, he was a very successful basketball coach. He won a lot of games and a lot of championships. And he also got a lot of... Um, credit for making sure that his players went to class and graduated and many of them went on I mean I don't know I presume went on to be successful basketball players and I I mean apparently the game of basketball is endlessly fascinated fascinating I don't get it um Colin laughs at me for rereading books or like watching formulaic television and I'm like you watch a game where literally it's run down the court, put the ball in the net, run down the court, put the ball in the net. It's the same thing over and over again. And you make fun of me because I like to relax with a Hallmark movie. Like formulaic is what we do. But anyway, apparently basketball is endlessly strategic and interestingly, I don't get it, but I don't need to harsh anybody else's yum. But um, 
but Bobby Knight was deeply problematic because he had an explosive temper and he um, like infamously threw chairs and would get yell at referees and hit his play hit his players. And it got to be so bad that he did get fired by IU, even though he was so successful in running the franchise. And that's pretty remarkable and and won't even detour the whole conversation about sports in theoretically institutions of higher education. But I just, he died last week and I was just really interested to watch all the tributes come in towards him and to watch the way that people were wrestling with this idea of like, well, we don't want to speak ill of the dead. And so people were giving very effusive eulogies to how wonderful he was and how important he was and how good he was at his job. And then there's this little moment of like, yes, he had this temper. And yes, there were those moments where he he hit his students, but he was such a wonderful basketball coach. And I just... Again, as a disinterested person, I'm like, that's very interesting to me just to see how transactional our ethics are in our culture, how like it does not matter as long as you win. Because if he had been a if he had been a basketball coach who was not winning, nobody would have tolerated that behavior. Right. And so, but, but nobody feels comfortable saying like, it's okay if you hit your players as long as you win basketball games and win championships. But that's exactly what we're saying. We're saying it's absolutely any, the end justifies the means. Like that's what I just kept hearing in all of these tributes. And I, I recognize like it's complicated for me because I do believe that people are more than the worst things they've ever done. I believe that. But I also think, you know, when the whole very powerful and wealthy culture coalesces around someone to say, when you do wrong, it doesn't matter. Be- like, I just think that's worth noting. And just like listening to him say, in fact, he did, a, um, I mean, they were, they were playing clips from press conferences where he was talking about when he died, you know, to bury him upside down so that his critics could kiss his... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. I mean, like this wow. guy was just defiant. He was just, his thing was wow. basically, um, I got results. The people who I hit deserved it. It was for their own good. And I just, again, like, because I am not in love with basketball, because I don't understand, like, I feel like I can just see a little more clearly, like, it's just fascinating to me, um, that that people think that it's actually a feature of his success that he um that belonging was always at stake with him right like he would physically beat you if you didn't do what he needed you to do and to hear all these people talk about like what he taught them and how he changed the game and just like these little phrases for like how he taught about you know defense or what I mean like whatever I mean it's a game though and he abused people and the fact that anybody who wants to sort of say okay but doesn't it matter like that we won't even really talk about that or that when we try to talk about that people are like don't be such a Debbie Downer like you don't understand I'm like no no I think I do understand and I understand that Bobby Knight is like a product of a culture and the values 
of our country and the pressure that we put on everything. And like, I think he really embodies, you know, toxic masculinity. Like he, he did what people told him to do and he did it because people allowed him to do it. And at the end of the day, the way everyone is celebrating him, I just think is very, is very revelatory about what our values really are, especially around connection and community and violence because, and this is not a surprise, like violence, we, we believe in the power of violence, like writ large when it comes to, you know, making wars and small when it comes to, hey, if you need to deck a player, then do it. But of course, it would never be okay for a player to hit him. So it's just, it's, I just think it's really, it's really interesting to me. So that's what I've been thinking about. In the Old Testament, there were prophets. And one of the things I like about the prophets is that they were able to say, thus says the Lord, to not only powerful people, but to people who were effective, were getting things done. So specifically, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Nathan. I'm thinking about David. Yeah. When David... Um, killed Uriah killed Uriah Bathsheba. took Bathsheba um, Nathan says, you know you're the man you're the one who has has done an awful thing after he told him a little a parable about a, a, a ewe lamb and David could have said listen I'm getting stuff done around here right Who's the one leading the nation to defeat the Philistines? Do you see our enemies all around? Right. I'm getting stuff done. And you're here criticizing me because of this. Bye, bye. No, and David did not do that. David was crushed by the uh, reality that his sin had been exposed. Like, I have done this terrible, these terrible things. Yeah. And my French art says... And I love this, that um, <laughs> David's repentance game was strong. His, I love it. With, right? Yes. And I think for yes. my whole life, I've been sort of annoyed or, or confused by how scripture is so, um, like, so unrelenting in showing us David's sin and wondering, like, does this, does this reinforce the very things that I think the witness of scripture challenges? But I think the, the, the story underneath the story is God is a God of reconciliation and repentance. And what, you know, and I think there's this superficial wrong reading of the life story of David, which is like, it really wasn't a big deal. Like what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba, not a big deal. Or Bathsheba was a whatever she was and it wasn't David's fault, blah, blah, blah. That's a terrible reading. And then there's a reading underneath it that says, no, it was a very big deal and his and we can't really make sense of how he remained a man after God's own heart. And then the, I think the deepest, truest level is it was a very big deal. And the offensive, chesed, loving kindness of God is that God said David was is more than the worst thing he's ever done. And, um, and David, yeah, I mean, to your point, any other king would have said, off with your head. And the fact that David is willing to say, I want to be made right with God. 
I, I will own and acknowledge my wrongdoing and seek repentance, even though I'll never get any credit for it, right? Like the people who would say, why are you such a wuss? You're the king. You took what you wanted. That makes you a man. Or the people who would have said, you are now ruined and, and you nothing you ever do or ever have done will ever matter anymore because you did this thing, that there's this third way for us, which I think is a biblical worldview, which we're not going to talk about today, which is that um, God is, is a redeemer and a reconciler and the fact of the worst of us is true and not undone. Um, you know, that, that part of what God meets us in is our own sin. Well, whether you are a king or a basketball coach, what's true of all of us is that our we, we are gifted. We are gifted people. And at the same time, we have um, flaws isn't strong enough. Sin. We have these... Um, sin tendencies in our personalities that need to be dealt with. Right. And I think what's beautiful about David and what we could learn from him is I think so many of us cling, we, we go to our faith tradition, we go to worship, we go to these places to be justified, right? Like we go yes. there to be told that we're okay and God loves us and that we're not the problem. And the and the beauty of David's faith is that what he craved was the righteousness of God. And so when the righteousness of God said, you're the man, he embraced that just as deeply as he embraced it when God said, my anointing is no longer on Saul, right? I mean, David had a non-transactional love for the Lord, which I I think really is the reason he's So a I used to find it really difficult to officiate a funeral, to preach a eulogy for someone who had flaws, habits, character issues that everyone in the room knew about, yeah. right? And so if you don't say something, you're saying something. Right. <laughs> and you, But you're afraid to say something because, again, that whole cultural thing about don't speak ill of the dead, whatever. I have, after many years, learned just name it early. Listen, we all know that our friend, our beloved friend so-and-so, he loved the bottle. I and need he, right. everyone hearing the sound of my voice to know that Yolanda Hinton is not going to be preaching at my funeral. No, oh, no. we. <laughs> I do not want it named. Just name it. Yeah. But that's not the only thing you say. Well, right. But there is the grace of God working in this person's life. It is, if, if you don't name it, it's, it's as if, well, it's as if you are afraid that thing is greater than the grace of God. Well, I think that's the bottom line. Like we feel the sense that, I mean, there's something really right and true about wanting to give thanks to God and to celebrate the particular beauty of a person's life that has never been before and will never be again. But at the end of the day, we don't have hope at the grave because of the goodness of the person who has died. We have hope at the grave because of the goodness of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so 
just like living in the middle of that. Because I think sometimes it's getting to be harder to preach a sermon when it's someone who, you know, I do like kind of hero worship because it's hard to say, okay, but, but like, let's name all these wonderful things, but let's know that our hope isn't in the virtue that we see in this person's life. And that's really like, I don't know, like Greco-Roman culture. Like our hope is in, is in the power of the gospel, which is why we can show up and walk alongside people who we perceive as innocent and people who we perceive as guilty, knowing that, I mean, A, we may be right, we may be wrong, but either way, God accompanies, you know, goes alongside God's people all the way. Um, This has become a very long podcast, and I think we need to end. Yes? Sure. Um, (laughs) So um, thank you all for listening. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, you can go to their website, which is www.deridachurch.com. And you can worship with them on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. You can also find... Because um, you've gained an hour of sleep, but go ahead. I, I mean, not by next week, but it's fine. Um, and you can also um, find Yolanda's messages at the Derida Church podcast on the Podbean website or on their YouTube channel. Their little icon is of their beautiful stained glass window, so it's like a, a, dove, it's a dove coming it's down. A beautiful dove. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship uh, with us at 10 a.m. on Saturday, where everyone is wildly welcome, and the dress code is wear clothes. And you can check out um, messages, um, old sermons at The Grove Church uh, podcast and on the YouTube channel. Look for the tree icon. It has roots. And um, you can also join us, worship with us virtually on Facebook Live. People can go to your website to worship with you virtually, right? Correct. Correct. So, yeah. So thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week.